into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what they say. When you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. But you know that this is The Theology Pit, the pit of theology. And like a bottomless pit, you can swim and dive endlessly in this pit. I guess if the pit was filled with liquid, but somehow... I don't know how that would work if there was no bottom. But anyways, it doesn't matter. This, when we study theology, when we get into the richness of what it means to, you know, engage in the study of God, that's what the theology pit is all about. It's about loving the Lord your God with all of your mind. That's what, where we, we get that from the words of Christ. He said that, you know, that's like one of the greatest commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with every part of your being. And loving God with your mind is such an important part of uh, that that movement. And that's what the Theology Pit's all about. It's about expanding our minds by studying what... Uh, God has said to us by understanding God through um, not only general revelation, which is everything around us. When you when you study the natural sciences, when you study science, you are studying general revelation that God has created that points you to Him. Even the concept of science itself presupposes a theistic understanding of a worldview. Before that was the mainstream, science was understood chaotically, or it would be chaotic but within mathematics because why? Well, mathematics, as you know, numbers are an abstract concept that have a real reality, something that's outside of a tangible world that yet has validity. And so the assumption in science is that there was a designer, that things are to be a certain way, and we can prove that by doing an experiment and repeating it. That is general revelation. Special revelation is what God has delivered us through the prophets and ultimately through his son. And the way that we have received that in these times now and this isn't the only way, but is through the Bible, is through the Word of God. And that is what we are studying here right now with um, episode 10 of our study of the Bible. And we are looking at the uh, canonization of the New Testament. Is it reliable? Can we trust it? And today we're going to talk a lot about the people who these books were written to and written for. Now, I know that last part of what I said, we have some Christians out there saying, wait, but it was written for me. Well, yes and no. Okay. Even St. Paul tells us that, you know, it was, it was written down for understanding, but written to you specifically, you in mind, you listener, you, you know, Christian who are saying that, you know, the, well, the Bible 66 love letters to me. And it's like, well, no, it's, it's not each a book in the Bible or letter or uh, section written, pericope, whatever you want to say, had a specific meaning that the author wrote. And it it was written to a specific audience of that day. And whenever we want to understand scripture, that's kind of the direction that we have to go in understanding, you know, what 
the authors wrote, who they wrote it to, who the original audience was, and kind of why. And, you know, that will help us out a lot more. So, the early church fathers are who we're going to kind of turn to today. I mean, last week we looked at um, the development of the New Testament and, you know, did the um, apostles and the other authors of the New Testament, did they know that other people were writing? And, and we said, yes. I mean, we, we could see that internally within this, this collection of the 27 books. We also, you know, spent time looking at you know, what books shouldn't be in the Bible and, and, you know, in the New Testament rather, and what should look be in the New Testament. And so now we're going to kind of move ahead just a little bit. And we're going to look at this time period um, called the recognition time period. And the recognition time period is from about 100 AD to 300 AD. In this time period, not only do you have these really bad persecutions going on, um, you, you know, if you move that back, I mean, this is, I'm just kind of, you know, ballparking these numbers for you. But 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and you got the Great Diaspora. And this is where you could really tell the difference between a Jew and a Christian. Um, because before, to the Roman Empire, Jews and Christians were just so similar, they could have just been another sect. Like, yeah, you, you know, they could have said, well, you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Christians. They they would just say that they they were just all so similar in their practices and what they did. Um, Christians were just different in uh, a little bit uh, of they, I mean worshiping on Sunday rather than Saturday, like those sort of things. But um, the formulation period. The reason why I say that 100 in there is because some people hold to the book of Revelation being the last book of the Bible written at a later date. Uh, like let's say the the 90s, okay. Um, let, let's say mid 90s AD. All right, somebody would would say that's when the Book of Revelation was written, which is um, roughly 60 years away from the resurrection of Christ to this uh, to this point. And th- there's reliability issues and those sort of things. And actually, that's uh, one of the reasons why the Book of Revelation was actually contested. Um, the it was not a a book that was, shall I say, universally accepted 100%. Now, when I say universally accepted, what I mean is that not every single church saw um, the book of Revelation as the same as the other books. It was it was one that was just kind of... Uh, it, it, it was it not really... It's not disputed, okay? The, it's it, it was spoken of but it wasn't spoken against because you had when, when people were looking throughout you know throughout the ages here first let's let's just let's give it 800 years of the of the church here okay even for well we could stay with our timeline 300 years 400 years here um people were looking at these the churches as a whole not individual people but the different the, the separate churches as a whole were looking at all of the books that were written and the ones that they said that they absolutely accepted was like old testament the gospel acts and the, the body of paul's writings um the majority of them accepted hebrews uh, there's reasons for for that why some of them would um, you know uh, leave them out. The majority of them, but a, a smaller majority, accepted the Book of James, um, Second and Third John. Uh, the majority of them accepted. You know, Second Peter is a little more iffy in 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 my opinion than that. But Revelation, 
especially uh, um, you had them people either you know they accepted it and it was it was you know accepted early but then later on you know like the the Morturian uh, fragment that we have it accepts it uh, origins account and his writings of you know what the uh, books of the New Testament are what the what the scriptures are he accepts it okay and that's you know, 225 AD and then you have uh, Eusebius of Caesarea I think I think I'm getting that right I'm, I'm reading sideways with with my chart here um, and it's blank which means that it's not even spoken about, okay? And when you have something that's not even spoken about, generally that implies rejection, okay? They're not coming out and saying it, you know, they're not... Um, uh, and they're not they're not insinuating it that that would say we reject the book of revelation they're just not in speaking of it so we have to infer that they reject it if they don't speak of it because they also didn't speak of a lot of other books and we don't sit there and debate well did they really want the shepherd of hermes was that really something um that that they consider because it's it's not listed well no the implication is that it was rejected and that was in 324 so in 324 AD you had people that, you know, were making lists of, you know, what books we should have, what letters we should have. And remember, you know, a book is a codex um, that, uh, you know, looks like a modern day book that we have now. Before then, there were always scrolls being used. So you'd have many scrolls. And the compilation of all these scrolls or all of these books into one uh, book itself is a, a a unique thing. It's it's a a Christian technology that was adopted by the rest of the world. Only time in history that you know Christians have been technologically advanced uh, more than the rest of the world. But um, so then you go up to uh, three forty eight. Um, you know Eusebius was three twenty four. Um, then you have uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, and in three forty eight. So what is that like twenty four years later, and he. Uh, considered it a pseudepigraphal work, a false writing. Somebody was writing under the name of John, and so they rejected it. Um, the Council of um, Laodicea uh, rejected it also. Uh, but you know what? I mean, and that was in th- uh, 363. But you, you think about it, um, because who were uh, the, the Laodiceans? Well, the Laodiceans were one of the churches, the Church of Laodicea was one of the churches that was specifically mentioned in the book of Revelation, in this book that they say is a, a false writing, okay? And if, you, if you're not familiar with it, then you know you can go to um, the book of Revelation right now in your Bible and go to chapter 3, verse 14, and read what John wrote, or who they would say, somebody pretending to be John, uh, wrote in verses um, 14 through 22. And it's not very pleasant. Um, he says, uh, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll skip ahead here. Um, well, no, I'll start from the beginning. Uh, to Verse 14, 314. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you were neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Take my advice and buy gold from me 
uh, refined by fire so you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. Buy the eye solve so you can put your eyes so you can put on your eyes so you can see all those I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent listen I am standing at the door and knocking if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me I will grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on my throne just as I too conquered and sat down with my father on his throne the one who has an ear had better hear what the spirit says to the churches all right, so that's your church that's that's being written to, okay, Laodicea, all right? Uh, you're going to read that, and, you know, you're going to be like, you know what? No, John wouldn't say that. That's not, that's not scripture. That makes us sound bad. You know, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, sure, they're looking at it and thinking maybe, hey, you know what? This was probably written uh, a couple hundred years ago, and it still stings. People are still reading. They say, you know, no, we don't accept it. So you can understand in a way why this particular council in this particular area, this particular church would call this a pseudepigrapha writing, a false writing. But then, um, you know, Athanasius in his encyclical that he sent around um, just three years later or four years later, um, that that he wrote, I think it was an Easter encyclical that he sent around to all the churches, had a list of the New Testament books in it. And in that list is every single one that we have today in the in the New Testament. And so people held on to that because Athanasius was a you know very um predominant um clerical uh person. And so um you know he was a defender of the Trinity. I mean, you have all all kinds of weight behind him and, you know, he sent it out. And so, um, it was then accepted, but then, um, Gregory of, uh, Nazantius, I think that's how you pronounce it. He rejected his, uh, pseudepigrapha and said it was, it was false in 380. So, you know, um, 13 years later. Okay. And then after that, um, the churches and the councils and everyone has accepted the book of Revelation. Uh, I would consider Revelation to be the most contested because of that. Um, so, you know, when people talk about, um, you know, these, uh, the other books that we, that we, you know, spoke of, the Gnostic writings and the pseudepigrapha writings and things like that, um, First Clement, for example, First Clement was never even mentioned in any of these writings, in any of these uh, collections, in, in you know any of the letters that went out. It's not there. Barnabas um, twice was written about. In uh, 324, it was considered to be pseudepigrapha, uh, a fake writing. And in the year 400, it's in the um, uh, Codex... Um, uh, I can't. I can't read what that is. Uh, it's the printing is not very good on on you know what the the chart that I'm looking at here. But um, in 400, there's a particular codex, particular book that you know has it uh, in it, or it's uh, spoken of, and it's accepted in that. Um, that's it. Out of all of the the historical church documents uh, categorizing what books should be in the New Testament. Only two even mention it, and one of them says it is definitely fake, and then you get one 
in the fourth century that says that it's it's not. Uh, what's interesting though is the earliest one that says that it's fake is only about seventy five years earlier. You know, it's like three twenty four then or seventy six years than the one in four hundred that says that it's it's accurate. Which means that you know you don't see it beforehand. It doesn't seem that it carries a lot of weight that it was actually written by. Uh, an apostle or, uh, you know, somebody who uh, claimed to be an associate of the po- an apostle. Apocalypse of Peter, on the other hand, um, was written earlier. We found that in the Moratorium Fragment in 170 AD, and it was given a um, ranking of anti-legomena, which means that it was disputed. It was it was spoken out against. It's mentioned specifically to uh, have it um, spoken against and said no, and that's only in one place. And again, the uh, uh, Codex in the year 400 has it. Um, And the uh, Shepherd of Hermes has a long history from uh, 170 on from that uh, collection on um, as being completely rejected. It was always um, considered a false writing and spoken out again until you got to the uh, the Codex in uh, 400. So, you know, all that to kind of say, that the church fathers, whenever they are looking at um, the the New Testament and they are discussing it, that they took it you know pretty seriously. Okay, um, and and I, I touched upon this here, and I'll you know I'll, I'll I'm gonna I'm gonna read some definitions to you to kind of um, bring about how we get this understanding of you know what they were actually. Uh, thinking about whenever they were writing it, okay? Um, the church fathers, all right, in, in this time period, this 100 to 300, they viewed the books as scripture, like as the same thing as Old Testament, okay? That's very important um, because they were so close. You're talking about people who were the disciples of the apostles, of the people that wrote it, or disciples of the disciples, okay, in that line, in that um, you know, magisterial authority, uh, so to speak, okay, in that apostolic succession, or succession, Anyways, in, in the line of the, the apostles, okay, the one apostle um, yeah, uh, discipled uh, the next apostle, um, and they also drew a clear distinction between their writings and the writings of Scripture. Now, with pseudepigraphal works, of course, you don't have that. They're saying that what they're writing is Scripture, but the early church fathers, you know, that are writing at the same time, like like I said, if you if you give Revelation the latest date, um, then you have uh, stuff like the writings of Clement that are within the writing time period that the New Testament is being written down. And he uh, separates his writings in his writings. He says these are not scripture. Uh, he he completely devoids his work from you know the work of the apostles. Um, if you as I see, I I hold to the dating of the Book of Revelation before seventy A.D. You know, somewhere around maybe like you know sixty four, sixty seven, somewhere around there before the destruction of the temple. Others uh, hold it later. And that's fine, but I'm not convinced of the evidence that it has a, a late dating. It really doesn't matter. If it turns out it does have a later dating, doesn't it hardly destroys my theology. It's just a uh, I, I just I just tend to see more evidence 
for being earlier um, with the destruction of the temple, which is one of the reasons why you know it may not have been accepted by all churches or you know circulated in that way because if it was something that was already written and, and let's be honest, you read the Book of Revelation, it's weird. It's just I mean it says strange things in it. It's written in apocalyptic language. Um, you need to have a good understanding of, or at least a familiarity with uh, the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel and Daniel and their prophecies. Um, uh, without that, it's it's hard to understand. I mean, I know a lot of people like to grab their copy left behind and, and sit there and read the book of Revelation, which they shouldn't do. Uh, but basically, if, if you don't get that, it's just kind of weird and it's stilted. You might not use it. And if it's not in circulation and it's not used, um, then you know the churches of that time are not going to be in their writings giving the weight to that particular book. Now, um, there were Gnostics, of course, that were compiling their own understanding of not only Christianity, but of the um, the writings that should be within uh, Christian scripture. And we talked about the Moratorian Canon, like you know, real quickly, the you know, written in um, uh, one seventy or so. Um, Marcion, um, he was a heretic, and he uh, a Gnostic heretic. And he devised his own canon and said, you know, well, we believe that, you know, the New Testament's true um, and the God of the New Testament is the true God uh, from a Gnostic perspective. Okay. And he is like the originer of the divine emanations. Jesus was the second in this list. And I mean, it it just has an understanding of um, here is my worldview. I'm going to take my worldview and then I'm going to force it upon scripture and I am going to interpret scripture based on my worldview and I am literally going to cut out what I don't think should be there. And by, you know, cutting that out, so sort of like the uh, the Jefferson Bible, you know, if you've ever uh, taken a look at that. Um it, it, that's what they did, but based on a Gnostic understanding. So his canon consisted of um, excluding the entire Old Testament. There were no Old Testament books at all in, uh, in, in Marcion's understanding. And the reason why is because that God is very physical, acts in a very physical way. Okay, there's a lot of physically um, harsh things going on, and what he's asking does not fit into a Gnostic worldview. So it would ultimately be rejected. Um, Luke was the only gospel that he accepted, the gospel of Luke, except for the first and second chapters, the the birth narratives. Uh, The reason why is because there's no way that Jesus could have been, uh, you know, born of a human in such an impure way and in in such a, a physical uh, description because everything physical is bad and everything spiritual is good. I mean, these are um, the the type of people that you know gave gave credence and or were um, docetists, coming from the word um, dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. They said that Jesus wasn't a real human; he only seemed to be a human. He only appeared to be like he was uh, a real like flesh and blood person, but he couldn't have been because he was just did way too many good things. Um, and he accepted uh, some of the Pauline epistles, and that was it. Okay, so. When you have somebody doing something like this, again, within church history, 
and within, you know, I, I would say within uh, stuff as a whole as human beings, you don't really talk about or think about things until they become a problem. And once they become a problem, then it becomes a, a an issue that needs to be dealt with. You know, for example, um, let's let's just talk about um, dispensational eschatology since we touched on that a little bit with the whole uh, you know rapture thing, the Left Behind series. Okay. The concept of this secret rapture occurring, you know, where the believers will be taken up and everybody else will be, you know, left behind. You don't see anybody writing against that opinion until after the 1830s. And the reason why is because it was not articulated until the 1830s. It was not an issue. Okay, so if it wasn't an issue, if it wasn't brought up, you're not going to have any writings for it and you're not going to have any writings against it. Now, I know people that hold to that particular eschatology would say, no, look, this person talks about it and this person speaks about it. And what they're doing generally is anachronistic because that's not what those people are talking about. They're not speaking out directly for it. They may be lending some credence to the concept of uh, you know Christ returning but it's usually found within the understanding of the second coming and not in a secret second coming before the quote-unquote real second coming, however you want to say that. It's really dispensationalism has three comings of Christ, but they say, well, since everyone's caught up in the air with him, he doesn't really touch the ground. It's not considered a real second coming or how, I don't know. It's If we ever get into eschatology and we, we start you know dissecting all this stuff, you'll, you'll kind of see what I mean, but I'm just, I'm just talking this way for uh, brevity's sake, um, that the point is, is that people People are not going to be talking a lot about it. So if you have something that is accepted, um, you, you really don't get a big deal. In the last time I checked in the evangelical circles, um, people that I know, one of the biggest things that is starting to come up, and it's it's reared its head every now and again, is the the debate on the eternal sonship of Christ. You know whether or not Jesus was always the Son of God in a certain uh, positional relationship that was uh, subservient uh, to God the Father, and if this was always been, or if this was something that occurred at the incarnation, and 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 that's something. So you you may see if this gains traction and really gets going, you may see more literature written about this stuff and people talking about it more, but. Why didn't you see any before? Well, that's because it wasn't an issue. Marcion in 140, 170, so, um, you know, in that time, made this an issue. And people started responding. The church fathers started responding, and the churches as a whole uh, started responding. So, um, there, the, uh, here's a nice quote here um, from a, a book called The New Testament Introduction by uh, Donald Guthrie. It says, From the early part of the second century of the Christian era, there is evidence that the letters of Paul were treasured, not merely as isolated communications, but as a definite collection of writings now commonly described as the Pauline corpus, or, or the body of Christ. Um, or the, sorry, the body, uh, body of Paul. Paul's works. Yeah, body of Christ, I think of Corpus Christi. Um, okay, so with that going on, you know, you're not going to have somebody come in that can easily sway with a list of what should and shouldn't be in the New Testament as 
Christians are accused of having. Somebody just coming in or a council coming in and saying, this is the list, everybody adhere to it. There's a big problem with that, that that's not what was going on. I mean, I'm talking about the church fathers here, Origen, um, you know, writes commentaries on most of the books of the New Testament, emphasizing their inspiration. Um, you know, um, you have uh, the, this... The, the, the time of the writing, again, uh, the Diocletian persecutions that occurred in 302 to 305, that's that's a real big deal. Um, because if you were being uh, persecuted for having writings, and I, I talked about this in, in um, uh, one of the uh, theology pits in uh, Salvation, when I went over the second century and their understanding that you had uh, people called the traitores, the, which means the, the ones who turn over papers, they turn the papers over. These were the ones that um, turned over the scriptures to be to be burnt, to be destroyed whenever they were caught. And, um, you know, groups did not want to have them as part of the Christian community anymore. They wanted them excommunicated for good, completely uh, booted out. But um, you, you get this sense that you're going to be sure that what you have is, in fact, the word of God and is worth dying for. Okay. If you have a copy of the Apocalypse of Peter and somebody says to you, that's a Christian work, you need to turn it over to be burnt. I mean, are you going to say, or die, you know, and you're going to say, well, you know, I'm going to die for this. No, you're going to be really sure. So the ones that you're really sure about, you know, those were the ones that people were uh, uh, killed for. So it, it, you know, helps to understand what, you know, was being, uh, talked about. And I think last time I, I may have touched on the, di- the diatessaron. Diatessaron is somebody um, got together uh, all the gospels and tried to harmonize them into just one gospel, just one book, you know, to have all four gospels together just to tell one story, one concise story. And it was rejected because people said, no, we want Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because that's of the apostles. That's what was written. That's the word of God. That's what we need to understand. So, you know, you're not getting any type of collusion or changes because people didn't want that. They wanted, you know, what was said, what was the original you know, what was that original, what was originally written down, or the voice that was coming out of it, the meaning. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. Samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right. So um, you also had someone like Eusebius. You know, he was a fourth century church historian. Uh, his his church history is very interesting and also influential when you read other church histories. They, you know, kind of follow the pattern. The way that that he wrote and the way that you know he um, framed things and and the the evidences that he brought up and the the way that he collected the data. Um, it's a very good uh, history to to read. I encourage everyone to read Eusebius's uh, church history. But um, when he spoke about the canon of his day, okay, the the books of the New Testament, he had um, really three uh, categories for them. And the first category was called Homo Legomena, which was a um, 
universally agreed upon books. And these were the four Gospels, um, Acts, the letters of Paul, which included Hebrews. They gave um, uh, Paul um, the authorship of Hebrews. Um, and First uh, Peter, First John, and Revelation. So at, at his time, he's saying, look, this is absolutely what every church is agreeing upon right now. Okay, not just church fathers, but all the churches in the area. This is what they all agree on. Now, antilegomena were books that were accepted by the majority, okay, but were disputed by some. So they would say, you know what, 80%, 85% of all the churches in the area, and I'm just making that percentage up, um, but they accept um, the, these these books here, and that were um, uh, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Jude, which um, uh, Eusebius uh, accepted. Also, he was part of that majority, so he accepted the entire New Testament as we have it today. Uh, but those were the ones that were they were they were just disputed because maybe um, a different amanuensis was used, uh, which is like a, a fancy secretary, a scribe that would you know write for you and would use different uh, language, or the authorship you know wasn't quite as well known. Or I mean, let's be honest, like Third John, what is it? It's it's how many verses? You know, I mean, if if we didn't have Third John in our New Testament, I mean, would it would it really change? Much of anything, I mean, doctrinally, not at all. Same thing with um, you know Second Peter and you know Second John and 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 Jude and Jude as as we looked at with with the one variant that we had, you can understand why you know some people had a hard time accepting it because Jude's the one um, that that talks about um, Jesus uh, bringing the uh, Israelites out of Egypt, specifically saying that Jesus did it, um, not not Yahweh, not using Lord, not using uh, the Tetragrammaton of Yahweh, um, not or the Kyrie. Uh, uh, of uh, the New Testament. I mean, it was stating that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, which probably, as as we see from the vast amount of variance, with it, it didn't sit well with people. They had a hard time with it, and that could be, you know, a factor in you know some people accepting it and some people rejecting it. Some people could be rejecting it just based on the fact that it had so many problems. With you know people wanting to change it, wanting to smooth it out, wanting to uh, change that part of it, and um, yeah, there there could have just been issues, you know, in that sense that they would say, well, if it's not universally accepted, then we just don't want it. And some people reading it and just saying, no, it doesn't doesn't speak to us in the same way because of uh, things of that nature. And then you had pseudepigrapher works, which is the third one. And the pseudepigrapher works are like the Acts of Paul, um, the Didache, and the Didache was like a uh, handbook on how to be a good Christian. Um, a, uh, I, I would almost want to say a liturgical document. I mean, it, it had like how to do church, how to baptize, how to um, do baptisms, uh, a catechesis in a way. Um, it, I mean, it comes from the, uh, the words to teach, um, you know, so, you know, it, it kind of means that didache kind of means the teaching of the 12, um, but it's not what the 
you know, the the 12 uh, disciples taught or the apostles taught. It's, it's just given that name. But when you read it, it's, you know, how should, how should you behave before taking communion, you know, fasting, uh, the proper ways to do baptism, like I said. Uh, if you have um, something like a Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church, I would, I would say it's similar to that. Um, it, it's similar to any type of, you know, liturgical um, understanding. And then um, we we move on now to uh, Athanasius, as as I said before, he's the uh, fourth century bishop of Alexandria, so he had, he had the weight behind him, and he sent out his you know cyclical letter, and cyclical, I mean, it just went around to all the the major churches of the time. He had five or seven real major uh, church heads at the time. I think off the top of my head, Rome was one of them. Uh, Alexandria was one of them. Um, Constantinople was one. Um, Antioch was one. Jerusalem was one. Um, I think Hippo might have been considered one. And then I know that there's another one in there that I'm that I'm missing. But anyways, uh, he sent it around, and um, he uh, it was like the first formal attestation attestation. You know what I mean? It was the first formal one that um, the, of of the current canon, and people were looking at it and they were agreeing with it. Um, Council of Hippo in three ninety three and the Council of Carthage in three ninety seven both affirmed uh, our current New Testament canon, and they forbid claiming any other writing as scripture. Now, these were not considered ecumenical councils, which means worldwide. They were considered local councils. So um, some churches in the East um, didn't accept it. Uh, but churches in the in the West generally did, and the majority of, of Christianity, I, w- I would say 99% of all Christians agree on this being our New Testament collection. And so, you know, you're looking at almost 400 AD before anybody was really sitting down and saying no more. You can't add any more. This is it. It's a closed canon. And, uh, you know, when, when some people say, well, you know, the Council of Nicaea, like that's where Constantine decided what books were going to be in the Bible and that sort of thing. I mean, when you really look at it, why would they, you know, they only pick Nicaea because it was so, or yeah, Nicaea because it was so um, uh, popular. People, people know that one. If you've been raised in any type of liturgical church at all, the, and which is the majority of the Christian world, okay? Even if it's not a high liturgical church, even if it's a lower liturgical church, you know, you know what the Nicene Creed is. Okay, and you know, and if you just looked at it and said, "Well, what is a Nicene Creed?" Well, it came from the Council of Nicaea. Oh, okay, that's very popular. Why not have it be a good place to say this is where we, um, you know, made up the New Testament or whatever, and people would adhere to that because they, I mean, how many people know that there were other councils? They they may not. They may know Vatican II, and that might be it from the 1960s. Like that's the only other, you know, council that they're aware of, and they would just consider that to be a Roman Catholic council. You know, uh, they would they they would have no idea of like an ecumenical council, worldwide council. Um, but nobody, I mean, when was the last time somebody said, oh yeah, you know, Christians just made up the new Testament and a bunch of guys sat around deciding which ones were in it because of the council of Carthage. What? Nope. Nobody says that. Nobody says the council of hippo. You never hear that. You never hear that argument. And you know, it starts getting kind of annoying when people say that mantra over and over again, the council of Nicaea, they decided the new Testament. It's like, no, that's so 
plainly false that, you know, it's, it's hard to even keep up when somebody says that it's like, you have no historical knowledge of church history, at least at all. Like you have no concept of it. So the early church had a suggested criteria in order to choose, you know, what books that they would accept as scripture. And again, um, I'm going to read these four points, and I've talked about this before, and I want you to kind of think not only of what they are, but what they kind of leave out. Number one is, uh, was it written by an apostle or at least someone recognize, of recognized authority under the apostolic umbrella? So, you know, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark you know, first. Well, how does Mark get any type of popularity or any type of traction? You know, I mean, he's not mentioned anywhere. Where do you get Mark being of such prominence that, you know, people who actually are apostles like Matthew, you know, would use it as a template? Where, where does that even come from? Unless it's somebody who's writing under the authority of someone like Peter, which Mark did because he was a traveling companion with Peter. Um, and, you know, some people say that, you know, he's, he's alluded to as the one who was, uh, you know, ran off naked when they came to arrest Jesus. Um, but uh, that would be number one, okay? Number two is, did it agree with the canon of truth? Did it contradict known scripture? So, it not only had to be written by an apostle, but it also had to be orthodox. So, you know, people would read it, and what was considered scripture at the time, it had to line up with it. Uh, Number three, did it have a self-authenticating nature? Meaning that it's writing on its own authority. It's not writing on behalf of anyone, like a pseudepigrapher work. Uh, it's writing on its own authority, and that was you know a, a big key in the tone of you know the, the writing that you had. And number four, did the church accept it? Okay. And that the church meaning like all the churches that were around and the church body as a whole, like did the majority, what was it accepted by the church? I mean, you know, if you went all over the world and you said, is this book there? And they would say, well, yeah, we view that as, as scripture. Okay. If, and I, I would give that majority, I'm not going to say 100%, but I'd give that majority uh, aspect. But what you don't see on the list is this idea of, you know, did a council say this is what it was, or did the church fathers say that this is what it had to do, or um, you know Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, France said that these are what it has to be, and therefore that is a criteria. That's not what was in there. The criteria again was: was it written by an apostle or someone you know who's an associate? Number two: did it agree with the canon? Did it uh, contradict known scripture? Uh, did it have a self-authenticating nature, and did the church accept it? Nothing about councils. Nothing about church fathers. It was all outside them. It was it was a group effort. It was how is the spirit working in the church community as a whole, and how do we how do we view this? There was no one person. There was no one group. Okay, it was a whole. It was something of a whole, which means there is very little room for there to be corruption in the books that we have, the list of the books that we have. Okay. Very little room for that. You couldn't, even if somebody tried to come in and and do it, they, it it would be rejected. It would be thrown out. There'd be so much written against it um, that the only way we would know about it is because of what was written against it that was preserved, not even what it, you know, so much wrote. And, you know, that's, that says something of itself. 
on the matter, uh, St. Augustine wrote, in the matter in, in his uh, book on Christian doctrine, in the matter of canonical scriptures, he should follow, this is uh, what Christians should do, he should follow the authority of the greater number of Catholic or universal churches, among which are those that deserve to have apostolic seats and receive epistles. He will observe this rule concerning canonical scriptures that he would prefer those accepted by all Catholic churches, meaning universal churches, to those which some do not accept. Among those which are not accepted by all, he should prefer those accepted by the largest number of most important churches to those held by a few minor churches of less authority. If he discovers that some are maintained by the larger number of churches, others by churches of the weightiest authority, although this condition is not likely, he should hold them to be of equal value. So even Augustine, you know, was uh, speaking about this whole understanding of um, the, uh, uh, the the canon of scripture and uh, Saint Augustine. Um, uh, uh, this is Augustine of Hippo, um, who lived in you know turn of the fifth century there. So uh, you know, I think he became a, a bishop in like the three nineties, and um, you know, I, I think he died in like uh, like the four thirties or some somewhere around there. So at this time, you know, he is saying, okay, okay, you know, there's some churches that have it, but you have to remember. You had churches that were set up by apostles, okay? And then you had churches that were splinters that that branched out, okay? And what he was saying is that the ones that were established by apostles that have apostolic succession in in this manner, uh, that those are the ones that are more weighty, okay? There are more of the disciples of the disciples there. Um, there are more of, of the people who you know, held to this belief generationally. And that's what is meant by that. So if you had like one church that was an offshoot, you know, somewhere in like Northern Africa that didn't hold to a particular book, like they said, Hey, we have the gospel of Barnabas and we say the gospel of Barnabas is what needs to be in there. They they would say, well, okay, you and who else? Well, us, Oh, okay, but that's not that's not reasonable. That's not good enough. So you know, it have to be more in on that. Now, what we're going to talk about in the next theology pit that I you know I'd really like to kind of get into is going to be the different translations. Okay, we we looked at it saying already in the theology pit. Do we trust that we can have the right words? Can we get back to reasonably back to the original writings? Okay. And and we, you know, came up with the conclusion of yes, we can because of how much evidence we have out there. And then we looked at okay, if we can do that, do we have the right books? And we just looked at that and say okay, we know that we have the right books and of these books because of um the amount of manuscripts that we have and the writings of the church fathers writing about this, commentaries, and even critics of the New Testament writing in their own accounts. And and when they're doing so to, to criticize it, they have to actually write the New Testament in there and, and we, it could be cross-checked that way. 
that we are sure that we have the right words. Okay, we have we are, are close enough to the right words. I mean, we can even say that we have ninety nine percent. All right, or ninety, let's say ninety eight percent. You know, but we can be absolutely sure that we have the right books and that we have the right wording. Now, it wasn't just written in Greek; it was also written in other languages. And so that's where I want to move to next in the theology pit. I want to move into the concept of translations and transmission. I mean, we talked about the transmission part a little bit about, you know, being it being copied out and, you know, those sort of things. And we talked about textual criticism, but translation is an issue because you have, and I, I may have talked about this before with churches that uh, say that they believe that um, the Bible is the word of God. And that this word of God uh, needs to be accepted and adhered to, and that they believe that it is divinely inspired, theonoustos, God-breathed. And because it is God-breathed, then you must adhere to it. And a lot of times, when you start to get, and I don't want to put this in a negative way, this type of rigidity, but a lot of them are what's known as King James-only people, that it's only the King James version of the Bible. And even even churches that don't hold to that aren't King James only that do hold to that, which are the majority, vast majority of the churches, um, they don't stress the importance of learning Greek and understanding Greek to get back to understanding and reading the originals as they were. And so that brings in the question of um, the concepts of are the words themselves inspired or is the concept that is being written inspired. The first one is called ipsissima verba. Ipsissima verba is that every single word is inspired by God. And the other one is ipsissima vox, the very voice of God that comes out of it, the meaning that comes out of it, that that is what's inspired. And there's a, there are a few others when we talk about um, inspiration, but just to kind of get us up the, this this you know springboarding point here, uh, I want to bring up those two because people who would say that it's every word that's important rely on translations in their vernacular in their common tongue, but yet they don't see the irony of not learning the Greek um, and that you could only use this one version. Now, we have to also ask ourselves if this was so important to have these, um, you know, the, the actual words themselves, that the words themselves are what's inspired. Was that something that the early church believed in? Was that something that the early church held to? Um, if it was then you wouldn't see translations in other languages. Now, when it's going out into other languages, of course, you're going to have translators writing for their audience. And depending on who that audience is, is how they're going to write it out. Now, just to, just to clear that up, if you're, if you're wondering what that means, if you're going from one language to another, in any, in any language... You know, there's going to be difficulty expressing, you know, what what is meant uh, whenever you're uh, trying to express a concept or an opinion or uh, whatever it it happens to be, because 
there might be a word in that language that's not in any any other in the language that you're translating it, or the concept may get lost. Uh, there is uh, one country, I don't know what it was, I remember hearing the story, where you would not uh, want to say to them you know, that this person has a hard heart. Because to them, that meant that the person was very brave. Where if you're trying to say, you no, know, somebody that has a hard heart is very indifferent to other people's feelings. Okay, they don't, they don't care about what other people think or feel. So you would have to use their understanding of, you know, their ears have no holes, which means they don't, they don't hear other people. They don't care about other people. And so in order to have that type of uh, understanding, well, when you're writing something out, you are changing the actual words, but you are doing it to convey the thought, convey the message. Okay, and this is where it starts to get dicey for people who believe that you know the Bible that they're holding in their hand, their English Bible, is the Word of God word for word. And if you challenge any part of it, you know, then you are you know a heretic. You are a spawn of Satan. You know, you have all these other uh, problems with yourself that you know should be rejected, as the theology pit gets a lot of times. Um, but it's because you know when you say things like you know the earliest manuscripts do not have the uh, a story in there of the woman caught in the act of adultery in um, you know the Gospel of John. People then I've been accused of it saying, oh, well, I guess you just get to pick and choose what you want in the Bible. And it's like, no, I'm not picking and choosing what I want in the Bible. I'm historically looking at the evidence of what we have and saying that if I'm saying this is the word of God, I want to be you know, very sure of that particular uh, statement that I'm making. Okay. I don't want to say something that God hasn't said and then said that he has said it. Okay. In a way, it's breaking the second commandment. Um, taking God's name in vain, um, or the third commandment, rather. Um, so, you have, in, in translations, you have a formal equivalence, which is a word-for-word translation. Okay, uh, There's a Bible called the Interlinear Bible that does do that. It will have either the Hebrew word or the Greek word directly above the English word. And you could read it. And it's very difficult to read. It's very stilted because... It's we don't we don't talk in that way, and some of them one one word in Hebrew may have three or four words in English, so you get these weird um, you know sentence uh, phrases and structures, and you know in um, you know the the way that it's uh, written also, it's very difficult to um, to understand. It's it's not a pleasant reading experience. Same thing with the Greek. Okay, you you get the same problem. Um, the next one you have is what's known as a di- dynamic equivalence, and that's a word-for-word thought translation. Okay, so you are trying to get, or not a word-for-word, but a thought-for-thought translation. Excuse me, a dynamic equivalence is a thought-for-thought translation. You're looking at a, a section and saying, "What is this author trying to say here, and what's the best way for me to?" express that, what word best fits or concept best fits, you know, however that works in there. And then the third one is a paraphrase Bible. That is where you're taking entire sections and you're not adhering to a word for word or a thought for thought, but you're just summing it up in your own words. Like if somebody says, I want you to take this paragraph, I want you to read it and then tell me in your own words what it says. It's that tell me in your own words part that you're reading that you know, it's just telling you about that, but it really doesn't, you know, you're not plagiarizing it, you're not copying it. 
So within this the this this three section threefold section here, the American Standard Version is you know very close to a formal equivalence, a word for word. Okay, not as close as the interlinear. Okay, but it's you know getting it's closer to a word for word than it is a thought for thought. Same thing with the um, the NASB. Um, the King James is moving up a little bit more. The New King James is moving closer to a thought for thought, probably middle of the road with thought for thought that people would be very familiar with would be the um the new international version which is written at a sixth grade level purposefully so that people can read it and understand it but that is more of a thought for thought when you're reading that you're reading more of a thought for thought and it's written in an english that people think and 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 in english that they speak so it's very good for um missionary purposes in english-speaking uh countries um, the, uh, the net Bible that I use is, you know, in, in between the word for word and the thought for thought, but it's a translator's Bible. So it's real good. The English standard version, if you're a big fan of that is even closer to a word for word. People really, really like that. A revised standard version also is, is another one. Uh, but if you've ever read like the, uh, the living Bible, or the Message Bible, those are big paraphrase Bibles. Okay, they may sound good, you know, concept, but remember, you're reading basically a commentary. You're not reading anything that would be close to what people would consider to be uh, the Word of God in in what they're what they're reading. Now, is this a problem? Well, we have a lot of versional evidence. Okay, that very early on, like in the second and third centuries, you had um, the uh, the New Testament especially the Gospels, uh, translated into, uh, like, Vulgate, for example, the Latin Vulgate, um, and, and um, you know, in Italian, okay, which says that, you know, if that's going around and that's being circulated, um, then it wasn't such a big deal to keep it word for word, they weren't saying each word is inspired. They're not. They're not implicitly saying it, but they're not explicitly denying it. You can infer from it that they're saying it's really the idea, the concept, the thought, and also, you know, you have the teachings of the apostle and the importance of the church that helps us understand this. So it actually being word for word, the, the concept of we need a Bible word for word in order to understand the Word of God, the study itself, is a very individualistic concept and it's very American in a way. Um, it's very Western in thought and, and individual you know, no taxation without representation type of understanding and you know, this is part of the problem with, um, you know, Christianity today uh, is that, you know, we need a Bible where we can be Lone Ranger Christians and the early church was not thinking that and you can see that through these versions um, Syriac, Coptic um, you know, this is 2nd century, 3rd Third century, fourth century, fifth century, um, and it, it never was a problem. It never was an issue. Um, this idea of doctrinal preservation—that the the Bible has to be perfect, one hundred percent from you know the original manuscript to what you have today—is a seventeenth-century concept that we will get into in the next theology pit. Because I hear the music along with you. So thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. Uh, Again, check us out on Facebook um, at The Theology Pit. Um, Check us out online at samsonstick.com. Send me an email, samson at samsonstick.com. And I, I thank you very much for listening. And now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you.